Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 105. All right, guys, it's a brand new week. So what's going on? I don't know. There's, there's stuff going on. So you're all back in your regular work groove. Now you're totally adjusted to having been away from vacate on vacation. I've been pretty heads down myself. Uh, I didn't even get a chance to see what happened. What was announced at F8 last week. I think we talked briefly about the fact that it was coming up, but uh, did either you oh. track what, what was announced? It was like the best F8 ever. You totally missed out. <laughs> there is, they came out with their uh, VR spaces thing. I played around with that for a little bit, but, uh, seems like there is other stuff but i didn't really pay close attention to it is there anything that caught your eye sam uh yeah a little bit there's some android stuff in there that's kind of neat uh they're doing something i guess that's similar to component kit or also react native but uh using native code and um actually native layout stuff too it's written in c but it's it's for android um actually their layout part though was is a, a C library that they distribute an iOS version to. And it just models uh, the, the whole Fluxbox layout that's common on the web these days. Uh, but the their, their, their little Android library, it was called Litho, I think it was. And it was, it was interesting. Uh, one of the cool things, they I guess it's also live now in the Facebook app, but they have this thing uh, where these camera effects and they're doing a really good job of uh, like facial mapping and, and kind of the augmented reality stuff. And so uh, they've actually published in a closed beta right now, this thing called AR studio and you're it's the video for it is pretty cool. Uh, you can create all kinds of faces and, and uh, masks and uh, just, it, it tracks your head uh, and all done basically in a script language, like, like kind of like an XML format or something. And you say like, here's a camera and a ma you uh, add a, a face tracking thing, object, and then anything underneath that will automatically track with your face and you can see it in a live real time preview. And then you can add background objects and then script those background objects even with JavaScript. It's pretty, pretty wild stuff. It sounds pretty intense. Yeah, I, mean, I definitely wouldn't have imagined this, uh, say, 10 years ago when the first iPhone was announced. I mean, we've definitely come a long, long way. Yeah, you'll have to give us a link. I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe we'll have to check it out for next week. Yeah, sure. It sounds cool. Um, yeah, I played with Spaces. It was pretty fun. It's basically the VR version of Facebook. So you like can draw stuff and like move it around and you can chat with other people. Although I haven't done that part yet, but I did a Facebook messenger chat with my wife and was like, hi, waving at her from VR. And she was just like, what are you doing? You idiot. <laughs> so she was just looking in at you, right? Kind of, yeah. It's like a window portal into the VR world. That they, yeah. You kind of have like a, get. yeah, you kind of have like a little preview window that you can see to see what your camera looks like. It's almost like a selfie stick. There actually is a selfie stick too, where you can like yeah. move it, move it around and take selfies and stuff like that. It's, it's actually seems like a really fun thing. If you have a bunch of people who have VR, like a 
maybe it's the future who knows yeah the social aspects of vr is surprisingly you know one of the the coolest parts of it i think you know to be in this different environment and being able to interact with you know people you know know or don't know play games um makes it a lot more immersive and it's you know better than playing with with uh, uh ai bots yeah that's i mean it's yeah it's just a whole different type of you know i don't know i think maybe the experience. ai bots might be more fun to talk to in some cases in some cases perhaps <laughs> we all have but, friends like that yeah <laughs> you know i kind of think of like on online games like uh starcraft or whatever are fun but you know when you're immersed in it it's in vr it's definitely a different experience but it's you can easily burn through three hours in it's playing starcraft and not realize it which vr you uh that's all well <laughs> I, I'm, I'm being optimistic <laughs> you actually Co- college days when we actually had land parties i mean yeah. it was not uncommon to leave the land party it's, and go get breakfast yeah yeah it's try not to do that anymore vr you get fatigued a lot faster with the headset so yeah you don't typically play that for hours you're not supposed to anyway yeah i imagine that would make walking in real life pretty hard after a while yeah well a lot of it has to do with there hasn't been a whole lot of studies on long-term effects of uh of a vr headset on your eyes and 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 really your brain so Eh, who needs our brains whatever we'll be fine (laughs) so like all those people that took up smoking early you guys are going to end up with some kind of eye cancer yeah well some will say (laughs) some optometrists will say it's actually better for you than reading a book um, because it's got the lenses built in so it's not as much of a strain on your eyes but you know it's too early to say one way or the other Although there are some some people who have used it to help cure certain uh, visual deficiencies that they have, like uh, being cross-eyed and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I can there's definitely... some good that can come from it too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and they, you know, there's places that use it to help with depression and meditation and uh, anxiety. There's some some doctor's offices and hospitals that use it as an alternative to sedatives to relax the patient so it's yeah there's definitely good it's just uh you know they all come with a warning that says don't wear it for more than 15 or 30 minutes and you have to be 13 years or older you guys sound like a medical marijuana commercial (laughs) (laughs) so and it all kind of comes back to there's just not enough data to say if it's safe or not if if there are any long-term effects uh-huh well yeah so yeah yeah it's uh a medical marijuana uh in uh, <laughs> vr form wow well so speaking of unintended uh effects I've, I've had some interesting uh reviews lately pop up on some of my apps that i'm trying to figure out uh whether to respond to it's like the evolution of the hostage star i'm seeing um Uh-oh. so i i got this review the other day on one of my apps and it basically said Hey, this is at least a four-star app, maybe five-star, um, but I'm going to leave you a one-star. So the developer responds to it, and then he had uh, basically two feature requests. One of them is already in the app, which makes me kind of lean towards want- wanting to respond to it to tell him where it is. But th- the other part of me is, uh, 
and it's like uh, if i if i respond to this one that means someone else is going to see that and then they're gonna do a hostage star response <laughs> you're gonna let the terrorists too. win yeah so like i don't know what do you guys think should i hold strong should i should i respond to the star terrorists or man that's a tough one i usually don't like to when somebody wants to try to play me like that i don't really want to play along yeah i mean we've had other reviews that we've responded to just just because you know they're having some issue that we knew about and either knew a workaround or, or telling them there's a fix coming out or something like that but yeah it's like i don't know if i want to let this one star hostage review be at the top of my <laughs> you need my a, reviews you need this some way to tie that back to an actual user account and then you can just maybe like up his AI difficulty and then <laughs> respond to the review. Yeah, that's that's hard. Yeah, it's a bummer. <laughs> What'd you do, Alex? Uh, I, you know, I'd be tempted to <laughs> report. You know, there's a link on there to report a concern. I don't know if you can do that as a developer, but um, you could have a friend <laughs> report that review and. <laughs> I can send I you guys know. a link. Don't worry. <laughs> it kind of depends on how Should it's written. If it's written notes? in a way that seems shady, then like you know, I wouldn't have any qualms doing that. If it's a legit feature request, that's fine. Uh, you can do what a lot of um, online reviews do on products and just respond, and say, "Hey, reach out to our customer support." You know, give them the email address and. So they'd be happy to talk about it there. Yeah, but the main goal is to get this guy to give the rest of the stars out, right? Right. Well, that's what that's what he wants me to do. Yeah, but you don't want a one star review sticking around. I don't. <laughs> In but I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to train my users that this is the thing to do either. <laughs> I think what you know. I don't know what tends to happen afterwards, but I I think what that technique does is it shows that. You're responsive. So when somebody's reading the reviews and sees the one star, and then they see that you responded with the intent to to help, um, I, th I think it reduces some of the uh, the one star. But if you're just looking at the overall rating, then yeah, it's you're not going to get that context. So you think I should give in to the terrorist? Is that, uh, is that what I'm hearing, Alex? I don't know. I don't know how how important the ratings are. I know you've got a, a strong position and you want to keep that. Yeah, they're fairly important to us. <laughs> so, you know, in that scenario. Well, and that guy's one-star review app for that current version, right? I mean, it will affect the, the overall, but your your star ratings basically get reset after every version. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Although, and there's a time period after you ship a new version where it shows like, yeah, like star average, rating. Right. Yeah, like from all versions. Although, this is one of the things that, you know, when they made some of those App Store changes, they said we're aware of this issue. So maybe in a month, it'll work differently. I'm not sure. Because that's part of the reason why everyone has to promise is because if you don't, then. It looks like no one's reviewed your app whenever a new version comes out. So maybe Apple fixes that, but then that'll have some other unintended consequences, like letting this hostage star guy be more powerful. Who knows? <laughs> I think the idea of like a rolling um, average of the waiting or the, of the ratings uh, would make a lot more sense, or at least a weighted average. That would make any 
It, well, it wouldn't make as much of a difference. I guess it wouldn't just dates. Um, no. But but it but would it also would, mean would, that uh, that it would haunt you forever. Yeah, it would still cause developers to be prompting all the time, though, which is the 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 thing that the users. Yeah. That's what they really, I think, want to want to try to fix is that I'm. Are but they? We'll see. I feel I'm like sure I feel are. like the only people I ever hear complain about it are developers. But <laughs> but then uh, again, it's... I hang out with a lot of developers, so maybe maybe my uh, I've got a uh, a biased uh, pool that I'm going. From. I think I think as developers, we're maybe a little bit more inclined than the average user to box but for the most part it's normal users and we just dismiss it get away from it as fast as we can yeah and most of them will say you know never you got the option to just opt out indefinitely at least until the next update well uh, yeah, I mean, never I, I, for this next six weeks and it's not good for users i mean i don't like throwing a a modal dialogue up in their face and saying hey review me but if i don't then I'm at a disadvantage, so. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of going back to responding to the the one-star review, I think if your rating does have a big impact on your bottom line, which it does in your case, then, you know, I would probably respond, but I wouldn't have the dialogue in in the response. I would direct them to your normal support channels and deal with it like you do with any other support. If the person decides to update their rating from a one star to a four or five star great if they don't you know i guess you know hmm. you didn't lose too much and if you get more of that then i guess you could just uh direct that to to uh a special folder i don't know <laughs> in your email, support email yeah i'll have to I'll let you guys know what I do next week, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So, came out hours before we started recording, which I think is kind of interesting. Is I don't know if you guys have seen this yet. The the rates for the iTunes have been cut uh, to a third of what they used to be, from 7.5% uh, to 2.5%, and only for apps and in-app purchases. You guys seen this yet? I saw that, and then when I saw it, I had no idea that there was actually an affiliate program. So it was like news to me that there was even an affiliate program. I have to imagine oh. that's a big driver for a lot of sites that do app reviews and and kind of it. People would talk about apps in general. Uh, it's probably a decent money maker. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's weird. Um... I would think that uh, if they're trying to improve app discovery, this this kind of discourages companies from building business of apps or uh, featuring apps in various places. Uh, maybe it's maybe the thought is if they're not happening as much on the web, they'll now that you can use the. Apple will get the money in this. This is only for apps, mind you, like the iTunes affiliate rates are also there for like movies and music and stuff. And that that didn't change at all. So this seems this seems kind of curious. Um, I've seen a couple people postulate that maybe Dub, they're going to decrease their own cut 
um, and this is just kind of a precursor to that and give developers a larger cut. Um, I don't know about you guys, that probably seems like wishful thinking to me. It doesn't seem like something Apple would do, but you never know. Yeah, what's do you do you know what the cut is for Google right now on the Play Store? Is it about the same? They're seventy thirty, aren't they? Yeah, they have the same cut as as iOS. Yeah, last I checked, they did not have an affiliate program at all. Yeah, they don't have any affiliate program, but they're the the cut that that Google gets. Okay. Well, I don't know. There's there's no real motivation for them to cut their their uh, pricing, their cut to cut their cut. And Google went and added things like Play Store re- review responses and other new features. Then Apple kind of responded in kind to keep up. I don't think that this is one of those things where they want to innovate down to the bottom. They did. They did do the subscription cut last year, so they they do see fit, uh, at least in some cases, to give developers or the content producers more of a cut in some scenarios. And I mean that in that scenario was because companies uh, were like, "Okay, we just won't be on the App Store, sorry." Uh, but I don't know. It, it seems like a bummer, especially without any relevant news of maybe some offsetting benefits towards those, you know, uh, blogs that mainly just cover in a third. You may have to, like, fire people or something. It just, I feel bad for those people. I have to suspect, unlike, you know, take iMore, for example. I'm sure the affiliate program is a, a component of their revenue, but it's probably not the majority i mean they probably have more yeah they're probably making more money off of traditional advertising i could be wrong about that but uh and and the way the affiliate links work as i understand it and i haven't looked at it in a while but i think it, there's some fuzzy logic you know if you click on a a, a link within a, uh for a period of time after that uh there's a window where anything you buy on the app store gets associated with your affiliate ID. So it doesn't even have to be the thing that, that you were taken to, um, with the link. It it could be while you were there, you also looked at some other things and ended up buying something that was totally unrelated to the article or whatever got you there in the first place. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's the way it works. Sounds right, and I think you're probably right about like iMore or something like that. But um, the other side of that is they've been trying to cut back on ads because people were kind of complaining about all the happening. Uh, that's a whole other topic. Maybe we can talk about Google is making. They may be having a ad blocker, but maybe when they announce that we can. Um, but but yeah. yeah. It's it's hard it's hard to be in business as someone who gets money. I guess I guess that's the bottom line, <laughs> and it's not getting any easier. Uh, 
in general, if you're a content producer and making money off of ads and affiliate programs, I mean, you're beholden to, to the ad company, you know, whoever provides the ads and, or the affiliate links. I mean, just kind of like the app store. I mean, you're kind of, you're playing by somebody else's rules. So those rules could get changed at any time. Yeah, I guess that's why you try to diversify as much as you can. Just just make sure that you always have a, a backup. Just make sure you don't have too many eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, yeah, you never know. Like somebody introduces the ad blocker and all of a sudden your revenue gets cut significantly. Yeah, but this goes to show you that it's it's really hard to build a sustainable business on other people's businesses. <laughs> yeah, if you're operating in a niche, right? It's very it's very risky to do that, I think is the word you were looking for. Yeah. Right? Definitely risky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's probably not too many businesses that don't have some of that, you know, if you're Yeah. Doing traditional um, product sales like a C- CPG, consumer packaged goods. I mean, you're mostly dependent on a re- products. Um, fortunately, in that scenario, you've got you've got your place, so you can, you know, if one retailer changes the rules, you potentially can go. Um, with us, with the App Store, we don't have a whole lot. <laughs> we only have one one retailer we can work with. Yeah. Well, right. Since since there is no affiliate program for the Play Store and there's no other credible smartphone store out there. Tonight, do you guys want to jump into that? Sure. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, our main topic today is mobile testing. So this is, yeah, you know, we've definitely talked about testing in the past, but uh in this case, we're talking about mobile testing as it is unique to, to mobile, the mobile platform, not unit testing or automated testing specifically, but all the different things that go into making sure an app works well in mobile. Right. Yeah. There's, there's definitely plenty of discussions out there about unit testing, whether, whether you might find it useful or not. Uh, interestingly, like some of the people on the under the radar podcast that don't find unit testing valuable kind of kind of leaves me scratching my head but that's that's their own thing maybe if they try to see if they would save time or not well but, and it's definitely it's definitely useful in some cases more than others but right uh, discussion for a later time i think we wanted to kind of take a different tact and just kind of talk about all of the uh, kind of specific to mobile testing gotchas that a lot of times you don't think about. There's lots of, or when you're doing a mobile app versus something else. And this goes beyond just like feature and function. This is, what are the things that if you took a traditional QA engineer from who's used to applications and put them to work testing your mobile app, what kind of things should they be in addition to those? standard uh functional test cases yeah there's some interest that'll that'll definitely nip you in the butt if you're not careful like layouts one of those killer ones yeah on a 
On your iPhone, you're typically pinning the layout to portrait anyway. But on the iPad thing, on orientation change, and, and there's so many different ways in each version of iOS that the orientations have changed that just getting it all straight is a royal pain. And so it's good to, to flip your tablet on its side occasionally and flip it again and see how things work out. Well, there's other, there's other weird orientation always got me was the face up, face down. Sometimes you're not handling that one properly. <laughs> oh, that's the device orientation. Yeah. Rather than orientation. I, to be fair, these days you shouldn't be looking at the device or interface orientation size classes. So that, that kind of takes care of it a little simpler than it was before. It does. But yeah, and size classes even coming into play when you do things like the, the multitasking on the iPad. Yeah, and I think that's uh, something that a lot of people don't necessarily think of if they enabled the slide over, slide over multitasking, uh, make properly add a third or half of the screen. It can be kind of difficult. And then orientation changes with that size classes potentially on orientation change. And it's, uh, there's a lot more to it. And I think, you know, we only had one major uh, device um, screen uh, ratio uh, and density and now we've got so many different screen sizes sounds like we might have a totally new aspect ratio in the iPhone 8 if that that ships this year and they're talking about having a, a two by one uh, screen size so uh, that's gonna another thing to test but you can test some of this in the simulator, but a lot of it you really don't get a good feel for unless you're on the device. And we encountered issues that, uh, you know, during development of people interacting with the screen while rotating, which is not something you would normally do in the simulator or even think to do, uh, but somebody just kind of playing around. And, you know, sometimes those buttons are still active and you might uh, accidentally click on a button that would maybe open up a modal, but by the time the animation happens, uh, the, the screen, something's changed. So right, or it's, if your modal should be opening from, if you got like a custom transition, you would want it to, to disappear back to, a rotation's gonna mess it up pretty, pretty nicely. And now makes it a lot easier for you to at least see layouts in different screen sizes and orientation, but, um, you know, nothing beats real device, but, uh, you know, definitely independent developers probably don't have access to every single device size and, and, uh, type. So, uh, it can get kind of expensive. Even if you do, you may not have the the time to test on every single right. iteration, especially if you're doing Android. I mean, yeah. there's no one who even tries. You just try to get a, the best representative sample that you can yeah, hit yeah. as much as you can. And there are some device cloud services out there. Uh, Google has one and, and several others, but I think that kind of falls in the same trap as the simulator in that you're clicking around 
rather than fingers. So you're probably not going to find those those weird edge cases. But I think if and a lot of the other things on our you kind of want a representative set. You're probably never going to have a comprehensive set. So pick a few that uh, that you can get access to and try it out. And beta testing helps with this as well. You know, if you can do a, a decent size beta test group, uh, you might your users are probably going to try things that you didn't even think of. So kind of jumping from layout, uh, kind of the next thing that I think a lot of developers tend to um, get tunnel vision on is general lifecycle events. Uh, you know, quite often we're, you know, building, rebuilding, you know, fresh on the device or simulator and not necessarily testing, you know, going to the background or coming back from the background or um, what happens if a memory warning uh, triggers uh, some some assets to be unloaded, you know, does your view will appear, view did load, get work if it gets called multiple times. And, you know, the users do. I knew users on Android often will force quit their apps to conserve battery. They do that on iOS too. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and that's, they do. that's what kind of surprised me. Oh. I never. You know, that's something I didn't think of until we kind of ran into an issue that didn't necessarily uh, appear until we found a user that, that was doing that. And it, you know, it wasn't a critical issue. It just, uh, that was a scenario we didn't really think of. Like, you know, you're not, not using it the way we thought you would. <laughs> you And you can't, you can't always guarantee that what you expect to happen when they even if they just close the app or the backgrounding happens yeah that all that stuff will actually get called <laughs> yeah another kind of aspect to the lifecycle events is like a fresh install or as well as uh an upgrade so those are two very different scenarios so um you know the clean install is probably not that big of a deal yet um in the simulator, if nothing else, but uh, the upgrade process, you know, in my mind is like a very important one, the data or state that uh, users would be sad if they lost, then I'm in a, in a bad position if they lost their data. Uh, you want to make sure that upgrade process uh, is smooth and have that as part of your test cycle. And it's super tedious to test too. It's I mean, you have to either install from the app store or get like an older version in source control, which is probably a best it, or find some other way to simulate data from an old version. But sometimes if you're going from app store to code, the stuff is different and that makes things behave differently than uh, you would expect them to. So yeah, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare stuff. There's, there's like interesting... You know, if you're using core data, you know, for the most part, core data, if you do it right, core it, but um, you need to make sure that you're checking, you're versioning properly and, and checking. And, you know, if it's kind of an automatic upgrade uh, or you can do um, more advanced things uh, programmatically, 
but you know another scenario if you if you uh, use the key value coding the NS NS coding uh, protocol to s store and retrieve data from disk uh, you can run with data types uh, like 64 bit you know that that can be kind of interesting or if you accidentally uh, change the data type or you added a property or changed the property uh, you know those can be kind of nasty little issues that if you don't test it uh, your user is going to be unhappy yeah you always have to m build in some kind of migration path for your data yeah and it's easy like you know you storing something that's you know it's, it's real easy to do typically but uh, if you don't uh, if you don't think about that upgrades then it can get you in trouble and the next thing on our list or next category is forms and uh, you know user input forms okay. pet peeves about ios is we've got a lot of components that we can use like input fields and text views and things like that but i feel like you know this is an area that that the platform doesn't do that well. There's not really any guidance or, you know, first class components for handling things like validation and uh, user feedback. And um, I always find it interesting that the whole floating label component concept was first introduced, as far as I know, on iOS, but Google adopted it as part of uh, material design. So. You know, there's a little bit better support for labels with input fields and feedback on Android with material design than, than we have on iOS. We haven't really had a whole lot of improvements on form fields in general uh, over the last few years. I'm still kind of hopeful that'll get better, but there's a lot of, especially enterprise apps that are very form heavy and uh, yeah, it feels like it, there's just way too much work to do forms. Uh, it should be a lot easier than it. Uh, but you know, some of the things that uh, kind of get overlooked is making sure you have the right keyboard field, making sure the the return key has the proper label in action. Like if you're if it's next or submit or you know um, send whatever it is that it's doing the right thing. Uh, you know, tabbing essentially going in the right order. Uh, auto completion and Apple keeps kind of changing auto completion and suggestions and how that works, but you know, have it like you don't want auto completion for an email address field. I mean, sorry, auto completion is the wrong word. Suggestions. Yes. You don't want it to suggest and autocorrect. <laughs> Pretty frustrating. Right. Um, you know, dealing with characters it's there's weird delegate methods for dealing with that uh and when people do deal with it from the keyboard they often neglect to think about copy and paste so you know I'll, you know have like a text document uh, text that i'll copy and paste into a field just to to make sure it's handling it properly um you know these are all ways of getting bad data into your system that, you know, you, you think you're blocking, but 
you might every different ways way of getting data in. Um, there's also an you know, external key split or movable keyboards. I think keyboards are going away. If uh, I don't think they're that well supported anymore, but um, yeah, I, I think most of us probably don't even think too much about the external keyboards anymore. But it's you know occasionally do run into users that do use our apps with external keyboards and. It's not necessarily something we think about. I'll add a, I'll add another thing that's probably formerly put it, but uh, remember your devices are multi-touch, so make sure that you can handle multiple touches at the same time. If people click two buttons that do the opposite thing or both do some thing with data that it would be bad if they both happened at this. As soon as one gets tapped, disable the other one uh, <laughs> or all the other buttons. And that's another um, one of those things you can't easily test in the simulator because oh yeah you're testing with the mouse actually test two button press or two taps at a time can you i know you can do the gestures i just yeah if you hold down alt while you're mousing over you'll get two dots and then you can hmm. rotate them and it's either alt it's a combination of like alt and shift kind of like then... the pinch gesture but a different yeah different key okay Mm -hmm. Good to know. Why? Well, I, I thought it was just a variation. And I thought it was basically just the pinch gesture because as you move the, it makes it smaller or bigger. So I I think that oh, is maybe it is, but I think that's the same thing. But you the can pinch use that with to tap too. It's harder to yeah. Yeah, it's 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 definitely possible. But <laughs> <laughs> anything more than two, you're you're not going to be able to do. Uh, I know we ran into issues at my previous contract where maybe we had like a table view cell that would grow and shrink depending on when you tapped on it. And it would, that one was expanded and the QA testers would just love to tap multiple cells at a time. <laughs> and then the, everything would just kind of go to hell after that. And another Another aspect of forms is adjusting the scroll view for the keyboard. And, you know, I find often when you work with a designer that's kind of new to designing for mobile, they often don't think about the keyboard. They'll do nice looking form, but not, not, uh, think about what it's going to look like when the keyboard's press. And, you know, this is another area that I think is probably harder than it should be. I, I feel like there should be an better support for dealing with the keyboard and, and auto-adjusting the scroll view and, and position. Uh, and table views will do that for the most part, and uh, I think collection views might as well, but uh, this is one of those that uh, could definitely be better. But, and also, yeah. pa also pay attention to orientation discussion from earlier yeah. when you're talking about the scroll views too. <laughs> yeah, I'm and pretty sure aspect ratio. <laughs> Because yeah. it's like, oh, that is not it's, visible. <laughs> it's but not on a 5S. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that happens. I'm pretty sure there are some Apple setup screens on the iPad that for a couple versions of iOS, you could not get past in, I think, landscape mode, potentially. Maybe it was portrait mode, but it was, it was kind of ridiculous. It was like, all right, this setup, make sure you 
rotate your device to to fill in this part of the form. It's like, eh, come on. If, if Apple does it, you know it's hard to to hit all those cases. Yeah. It's lots of fun little variables to keep account of. So the next thing on our list is performance and hardware capabilities. And I, you know, I don't think we need to dive too deep into instruments because that's a whole topic on itself, uh, in terms of like testing for memory leaks and performance and battery usage. Uh, I, I do like the fact that Xcode or nice widgets, uh, into, into Xcode itself. So you can see some basic metrics on memory and, and CPU, uh, but doesn't necessarily replace the need to run your apps through and make sure that uh, everything's looking good and add this back into automate and automate some of that. But, uh, you know, you definitely want to check that you cities, uh, you can definitely have different behavior on different chipsets. Uh, you know, I've mentioned 32 and 64 bit, uh, processors, you know, it's, you know, we've seen animations work great on 64 bit and then go to a 32 some supported, I think iOS 10 in the supported list. Um, the five. Yeah. So it can take a lot of work to optimize for, uh, you know, animations, uh, for these old devices, but yeah, in some cases you really need to do that. Uh, there's also differences in hard capability. You know, like, can you make a phone call? Uh, the iPad can't do so. Um, you know, you didn't have cameras on the iPad, so it, you know, if you don't, capabilities are there. You can, uh, you know, you can run into crashes at at runtime that that you didn't expect. Well, the iPad does not have a flash or the version I have, the air two does not have a flash. And I think maybe the still don't have flashes, but if you're expecting to say, turn on what they call the, the torch and it's not there, then you're going to get a crash. Yeah. So kind of related to performance is connectivity. And this is another area that that uh, probably doesn't get tested thoroughly uh, in a lot of places. Uh, you're often on your corporate Wi-Fi or your home Wi-Fi, and uh, you, you know, as developers, we probably have pretty good network conditions, but uh, real users often don't. And sometimes this can create interesting scenarios, like a poor performing networks and slow response time might open up opportunities to tap a button that you weren't expecting uh, anybody to have time for, or, you know, the delay might impact you reliant on a high end network connection, limited latency. Uh, you can definitely using your apps uh, when they're not on Wi-Fi or when they're in a place where they still have connectivity, but not good connectivity nice thing about this is both Mac and iOS have a utility called network. So you can simulate a lot of different network conditions, uh, like no connection, pretty easy with 
just turning on airplane mode, but you can set up your connection to be DSL or just high latency and you get some scenarios as well. Frustrating if you accidentally leave that on too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we've all done that before. <laughs> Mac seems even easier to do it there to me anyway. Um, an airplay is kind of another aspect of that that kind of requires its own testing and there's a little bit more coordination that has to happen um, and something that uh, you know I see often is companies that have multiple environments uh, for their server-side logic you know dev staging beta prod um, having an easy way to switch between those and ensuring that it's pointing to the right network is or the right uh, environment is uh is important and you, very important <laughs> you don't want to accidentally ship something that's pointing environment or you know it's hard you hard code it and you have to change it by um editing source code um, so i think you know for your testing you want to make sure it's clear what environment it's uh ideally often on several projects we've created uh environment switchers to let testers switch between different that doesn't ship to production. And we've done that in a few different ways as a settings bundle or, or, or a, uh, a separate app that will use to, to tell the, the main app what environment to point to. So it can be done to be fairly flexible. We've also had, had different targets or um, build configurations so we can generate different versions of the app that point so several different ways of dealing with this but um, you definitely want to make sure you're managing that properly and not not editing source code and where you might accidentally forget <laughs> to change it back before you ship either, either one if you have to make an edit to make a a prod release of your app it's probably yeah. not a good thing now xc config files i think are not a as long as you tie them more you can have uh you could use something like plist buddy to modify it but you'd want to tie that back to a build scheme to make that happen it shouldn't take manual intervention to switch it back to prod <laughs> that should be the default <laughs> and then everything else is an override however you you do it and not, not a manual override. All right. Um, so that takes care of connectivity. Now uh, we talked a little bit about localization, you know, in length about localization in a previous episode. Yeah, I feel like we covered that well. Um, but you know, just if you haven't listened to that episode, you can. But. You know, there are a bunch of tools built into Xcode to help with testing you know, different string lengths or um, will warn you if you haven't localized content. Uh, right to left is another important one. And so, and uh, you know, we won't dive too deep into it tonight since we already covered it. Uh, same with accessibility. That's another area that definitely warrants a decent amount of testing. Uh, but we covered that in length as well in a previous episode. So uh, some kind of general topics, uh, 
you know, testing, use location services and mapping. Uh, you can simulate these things in Xcode. You can locations uh, that make it easier to test. Uh, and another area is permissions and privacy settings. This, this was, it's not the most well-documented. It may be easier now uh, than it was before, but you have kind of a global reasons, but if you if your testers have already agreed to the permissions, often they're not going to re-trigger a, a branch of your code uh, that may have stopped working between versions. You know, Apple may change something and uh, may never hit go th may never be on devices that have already been used for testing unless uh, you have a practice of resetting the permissions and having that as part of your test test plan. And uh, it's pretty easy now. You just go to the general reset, reset location and privacies. I think it might have changed in iOS 10, but it's generally the same thing. And a whole bunch of different settings, relations, contacts, photos. Um, Android has to do this as well now. They used to, it was kind of like, if you want to install the app, you have to read everything. And now they've got the same kind of a la carte permissions that, that we have. Yeah, they like taking lots of cool stuff from us. They just took our uh, updating screen recently. I saw a lot of people tweeting about. <laughs> yeah. Last thing on our list for tonight is app in interoperability. And, you know, uh, quite often your app is going to rely on other apps like, you know, maybe Twitter or Facebook or, or maybe apps rely on um, you know, that definitely requires different scenarios of, is it there or not? Do you have permission or not? Uh, is the account framework set up? You know, iCloud could be considered, you know, similar to this. Uh, so having test scenarios to, to test is, um, if your app is relying on, on third parties, Apple has a tendency to change these things. So, uh, you know, they change the way, uh, opening up a app works uh, so they set some limits on that because uh, some apps work um, you know just because it worked three versions ago doesn't mean it's still going to work today all right that's the quick run through our non-functional testing list for mobile <laughs> uh, there's a lot more that uh that could be discussed. I'm sure there's other lists that are are more comprehensive out there, but these are kind of the main things that uh, we encourage QA to go about as they're testing. QA meaning the indie dev that is right. Uh, yeah, whether it's the indie dev or you have a whole team, it's uh, uh, most people don't think about uh, when they start testing. They just think about features and functionality and not the little corner cases that come along with the platform. Is this a list that you're willing to share with, with our listeners uh, in text form or? Yeah, and this I've got this as a gist on GitHub, so we can include a link to that in the show notes. Cool. And feel, feel free to comment or, or improve upon it. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes, but I think that's about all the time we have left this week. So why don't you guys 